Hi, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of Slotkin and Fisher at the Theatre. I'm your host, Tom McGee, and once again, we are here to discuss uh, the latest things to hit the Toronto stage. Our two critics, Lynn and Steve, will bring their uh, contradictory but uh, complimentary views, and uh, we'll see what they have to say about these shows. So, uh, today's episode is once again brought to you by the fine folks over at Brick and Mortar, and you'll be hearing more about them a little later on. So, on today's episode, we will be dealing with Tarragon's Hamlet, Lear, uh, Groundlings Production, Calpurnia, produced by Nightwood and Sulong, and Delicate Balance, produced by Soul Pepper. So, to kick things off, here we are with Hamlet. So, uh, Lynn, why don't you kick us off? Uh, what were your thoughts on Hamlet at Terracon? Well, I was um, intrigued um, because uh, Richard Rose, the director, has used as his concept a rock concert to tell the story. In other words, all of the lyrics, all of the songs, etc., was the play that William Shakespeare apparently wrote. And I tried to keep, I tried to buy into that concept. I just couldn't. I could not figure out why he would use a rock concert and not a modern one. Every character held a handheld cordless microphone instead of having them body mic'd, etc. So I wondered why he did that. And they were leaning in like they do in rock concerts. It's just that I could not comprehend what his concept had to do with the play. And as such, it just got more and more dreary, aggravating, confusing, as I tried so hard to give him the benefit of the doubt, wondering why you would do this. You've got to convey why you're doing this to the audience. If it's a mystery or if it's something that you just figured out uh, that it would be an interesting idea and you're developing with your cast and you're not telling your audience, I'm out the door. And Steve, what did you think? Well, I, I bought into it. I really enjoyed the staging. And uh, for, for me... it. it so it has the trappings of a rock concert, but the show itself is not a rock concert. There are no songs in the play that weren't there already. Um, so none of the soliloquies are turned into, you know, ballads. They uh, are. They're turned. What, 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 one of them from from Claudius was turned into a rap song. I have no problem. My my problem is mm. why. Continue, well, sir. Okay, so if if this was and this and it isn't, but if this was a musical, the actors would have to be mic'd in order to compete with the music behind them, and that's the key thing. There is an onstage band. That onstage band consists of the ensemble. So there is music throughout the whole show. There is a sonic uh, sonic scape that underpins the whole show, um, and there's almost always music, except at a few key points, as in with some of the Hamlet soliloquies. So that's there. That's one practical consideration for the microphones because they do need to be able to speak over the electric guitar and the drums. And I, I loved the sonic, you know, the, the the underpinning, the soundtrack, as it were, for this Hamlet. Um, yeah, I liked it a lot. Uh, shall we talk about the individual performances? Or because I really thought Noah Reed was a great Hamlet. No problem there. Yeah. Okay. Noah Reed has a he a young man, wonderful uh, concept of the character, brooding, thoughtful, angry, mm-hmm. hot-headed, knows how to speak the language like a dream. I had no problem with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other people, I mystified. Why would you have, for an example, 
uh, a Gertrude sitting in front of watch in front of the audience as she is watching the mousetrap scene in a sense listening to a situation that echoes what has happened in her life her husband has died she's married the brother there's some kind of strange thing going on and I'm looking at an actress Tantu Cardinal who has gives me no sense that she is registering that story, no sense that she is picking up echoes of her story. Why would you do that? I didn't think she was a very good actress, but why would you present her, direct her, so that there is absolutely nothing on her face to indicate she's even in the room listening to this? Go ahead. Okay, no, I, I, I'm not going to argue against that, that choice because it was a little odd. But with some of the the casting and some of the performers, for instance, uh, Tiffany, uh, Tiffany Ialic, she uh, I thought she was a really good Ophelia. She was very good. I, I loved the the singing and the the madness in the Ophelia madness scene. Um, but when she was not on stage as Ophelia, and all the actors stay on stage for almost the entirety of the production, uh, she was contributing to the the sonic landscape uh, via throat singing. And uh, I thought that was a fascinating addition, and it really underpins some of the scenes, too. So I didn't see it as uh, window dressing, per se. It was, it was an integral part of the production, uh, the, this music uh, that mirrored uh, the, the action on stage. And I, I thought it was a really interesting production. And of the two Shakespeare's we're talking about this week, it was my favorite. So, Lynn, uh, final thoughts? I'm mystified by this young man over here. <laughs> I mean, I... I Again, why? I can understand you're saying that you, in a rock concert or a concert, you have to be microphone over. This Mm. is a specific choice to make them handheld, old-fashioned microphones, handheld, which you don't see, maybe you haven't seen them in 20 years. Again, I have to say, why have you done it this way? How does it serve the play? And it doesn't. And I found sitting there and sitting there and listening and and watching and and uh, thinking that Bo Dixon plays the drums like a master. He's amazing. Wondering, wonderful. I love his him. player cream was great too. I'm thinking this is boring. It is it is one noted in a way because you're not allowing the play to quote unquote sing. You've got people who are uneven in their abilities to speak the language. You have people who are not not uh, uh, recognizing that stories are about them there, not um, not giving it anything that indicates that they are involved. I found it deadly. I found it boring. If I could see Bo Dixon play the drums for three hours, that would be happy. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's as good a point as any to leave it. So that is Tarragon's Hamlet. So next up, we have Groundlings Lear. So Steve, what did you think? Okay, so uh, these two Shakespearean shows, they take different approaches to the staging. The, the, the Hamlet that we just discussed uh, took an unorthodox approach, whereas this Lear is taking a, uh, it's a very uh, classic and traditional staging of the play in the sense that we think of these sort of things. It's not full-on you know, people throwing things or yelling at the stage. Uh, that you might have had in Shakespearean times, but well, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Suffice to say, there there are great performers. Uh, it's a great cast. 
It's a cast with a lot of experience with Shakespearean text uh, pulled from Shaw and Stratford and other places where they have honed their uh, chops with uh, Shakespearean text. Sean McKenna is a terrific lyric. She's very good. Uh, Particularly in the beginning as the imperious uh, authoritarian uh, lyric. And also at the end, when uh, Lear has fully descended into madness. I don't think that's a spoiler. Everyone knows what happens in this play. Um, so it's really about how you get there. And uh, I- I'm going to let Lynn uh, wax about uh, some of the performances and about what she liked about the staging. I had one serious issue with this show, um, and it's the design of the show. It's stadium-style seating, which was great. and we're see- We've actually seen that in most of the shows we've seen this uh, these past two weeks. Um and the stage itself has uh, a series of wooden uh, slabs or flats that are moved and manipulated and moved around. And they're not anchored. And at least three different times during the show that we saw, uh, when the actors stepped on them, they moved, they shifted. Uh, and there were gaps uh, on the stage. And I was pulled right out of the show because I was kept watching those gaps, waiting for an actor to step in them. Uh the actors have to be on a sound footing when they're performing, and for me, this was a serious design flaw, because if I'm thinking about the actor's safety, uh, rather than the occurrences in the play, I'm not focused on the plays, so... Okay, so, uh, Lynn, I'm going to ask your opinion on that in a sec, but before we get to that, um, what did you think of the piece overall? I loved it. I thought that it was thoughtfully, simply, clearly directed by Graham Abbey. I th- having those actors on stage who understand clearly what is going on, the subtext of all of these people, that when they're listening to another character speaking, they are actually reacting to what is being said as if they are listening and involved in it. I can see your point about moving the slats. You move, the, you move those, those flats uh, and those slats around to create new... Um, new locations in the in the text. I wasn't worried about anybody falling because I have faith that they would have attended to any problem when somebody is walking on a flat. I I didn't have a problem on opening night seeing that. Um, I thought Shauna McKenna, as as a woman playing a part, we generally think of as a father. I think her imperious finger snapping woman was terrific. She scared me. I could see where those two older children, all those two damaged women come from when you have an a, a, an abusing parent saying, tell me how much you love me and I will give you a parcel of land, a present better than your sister. When we know from the beginning of the play that she's already divided the land equally and she's divided it amongst her sons-in-law and not the, the, the daughters, the sons-in-law. So you get this whole notion. So tell me how much you love me and I'll give you a present better than your sister. You're wondering why you have these two harpy children, these two damaged women don't like you? Are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> uh, let me use my phrase. Do you practice being stupid? And the only time that Lear goes crazy is when she, in this case, doesn't get the answer she wants from Cordelia. How much do you love me? Well, I love you like a daughter should. Well, that's not, you know, I have nothing more to say. Well, nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Well, 
Hum, you want me to say it louder? So the only time she goes, the first time she goes crazy is when she's crossed. And so it's an emotional roller coaster of a production. I loved a lot. I loved all of it. I didn't think there was a weak point in this whole thing. And I was so grateful to see as many of those actors on that stage doing Shakespeare. Certainly Jim Mison as Gloucester. He was wonderful, yep. He was wonderful. And uh, Steve, any final thoughts on Lear? Well, yeah, no, I, uh, Jim Mison was wonderful. I also really liked uh, our, our Kent. Uh, it was uh, Kevin Hanchard, who was, yeah, he was fantastic. But the only difference, the, with the exception of Sean McKenna as Lear, uh, there were no other variations in the, the the casting and in the it was a very traditional it was, <gasps> what, it was what you would see if you went to see it at at uh, Shaw no. Stratford. So I what? Thought. So what? I know that's not a Is bad that a thing. Problem? That's not a bad thing. It was a good staging, but I think back to Prince Hamlet, the one the Why Not Theater production we saw, where the, it was all turned on his ear, and uh, there were uh, the gender differences and uh, in the staging and. And some of them were queer. And I, I think if you're going to change just one thing, and certainly Lear is the, the principal role, but in all other respects, I thought this was a, it was, it was a very good conservative staging of this play. I have no problem with conservatism yeah. as long as it's quality. Okay, well, and I have to tell you that in Deb Hay, who played Goneril, I have never in my whole life seen a more damaged Goneril ever. That was a revelation. If you have a revelation of, of of going to the theater maybe once every 10 days, that is a bonus. Here was a woman who was quivering with having to talk to her mother and tell her how much she loved her. And I thought, oh my God, I have never seen that. That was brilliant. I conservatism is not a terrible thing if there's quality involved in it and intelligence. Hamlet, you can put it in in chocolate sauce. If it (laughs) makes no sense, I'm not interested. Okay. All right, so I'm uh, forcing our critics back to their corners here. I'm going to ding the bell and uh, we'll get ready for uh, round three. That was Lear, Groundlings Theatre Production. Today's episode is brought to you by Brick and Mortar. Brick and Mortar Toronto began in 2012 with the aim to provide clean, beautiful, and affordable creative space to artists, regardless of their experience level or financial situation. Co-founded by local actors and producers Casey Dunn and Vicky Velanosi, Brick and Mortar currently runs four studios across three locations spread across downtown Toronto. You can book space at The Attic, The Box, or The Commons for as low as $17 an hour. To book your space or to learn more, visit www.brickandmortartoronto.com. Thanks, Brick and Mortar. You guys are awesome. So that brings us to our third production, A Delicate Balance at Soul Pepper. So, uh, Lynn, what did you think about A Delicate Balance? Uh, I thought this was a very interesting, very solid, delicate, delicately balanced <laughs> production directed by Diana LeBlanc. This is A Delicate Balance by Edward Albee, a prickly, tricky dangerous, confusing, confounding playwright. And in this one, you have an upwardly mobile, um, wealthy sort of, wealthy, comfortable family of Tobias is the husband, um, Agnes is his wife. They live in a, a in, in very, I would say, palatial surroundings. They drink 
they discuss, they talk. So it all seems very, very polite and very respectful. But Agnes's uh, not an alcoholic uh, sister. She is a drunk. Um, Claire also lives there. And that offers friction. Their daughter, Julia, is working on her fourth marriage, and she's coming home because the marriage has broken up. You know, her husband has a rigid way of thinking, and he won't change his mind, so that's cause for for ending the marriage. Then they have two, na- two best friends. Uh, one, hold on. Harry and Edna, who were sitting home, and f- something terrified them. They don't understand what it was, but they came to their best friends, Tobias and Agnes, and they want to stay there. So you have this situation of trying to keep civil, trying to keep uh, everything on an even keel, but you have all of this simmering, all of the simmering emotion going on of, of sister against sister, a daughter against parents, friends who walk in and take over they have they are staying for example in julia's room and she's really aggravated about that so how to keep this from going along until the sort of explosive ending and it's quietly explosive is a trick of a really a really good director diana leblanc does it in spades and it's a fantastic cast as well agreed yeah, Steve. What do you think? No, I agree in pretty much all respects on this show. It's it's, it's very no fun. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I was like, what can I argue with? I really can't. No, Nancy Polk is magnificent as the matriarch of this very dysfunctional family. Uh, Oliver Dennis, uh, great as well. The the yeah, the cast was great. Um, Diana LeBlanc has apparently directed this play before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have Robert Cushman to thank for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I asked him after the show. Could have asked me. I, I could have. You would have known. Yeah. yeah. So so this is uh, yeah. This is a, a. It's not remount, but yeah, it's a great production. It's a great staging, and of course, the temptation for us is to color in what we see on stage with everything that we know has been happening off stage for the company and I think that would be doing it a disservice. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, so that is a delicate balance at Soul Pepper. Alright, so next up we have Calpurnia, which is a Nightwood and Sulong production. So uh, Steve, what did you think? Okay, so... I I really like this show. Uh, it, it's <laughs> I think we probably have to preface the fact that one of us is almost certainly going to say something that other people would construe as racist, and that's and and that is almost the theme uh, and the message of the play is that uh, you know as in and I'm not I'm sure I'm not the first to quote this, but they have new coup. Everyone everyone's a little bit racist. Yes. Everyone has their own blind spots. Everyone is uh, in some ways maybe even willfully, ignorant of their privilege. And that's what uh, playwright Audrey Dreyer is going after in this play. Um, She is exposing all these characters' uh, hypocrisies. Uh, It opens with uh, a writer. Uh, Her her name is Julie. She is uh, sitting in the very tasteful, ornate living room uh, of her father. She lives with her father, a retired judge. And uh, she's working on a screenplay. And this screenplay is a... Uh, adaptation of 
um, To Kill a Mockingbird that takes liberal uh, creative license with the events of the play and telling from the perspective of the Finch's maid, Calpurnia. Um, And the other family members uh, have, as they discover what Julie is planning to uh, write and send to her agent, the agent that was uh, obtained for her by her father, uh, they take great issue with this because, uh, in the words of her brother, who puts it very bluntly, he says, you don't have any other black friends. Uh, If this agent has criticized you for not having found the black voice, maybe that's because you're not black enough. Oof, what a... What a what a terrible thing to say to your own sibling, but um, yeah, now <laughs> Lynn's going to have something to say about that. Anyway, uh, as the show progresses, uh, we have a very distinguished guest, uh, a uh, the head of a law firm that retired Judge Lawrence, played by Andrew Moody, has invited to his home for dinner uh, in order to introduce him to his son Mark, played by Matthew Brown. Uh, in hopes of landing him a position at this prestigious firm. And uh, Julie decides that she may better uh, interpret uh, Calpurnia by doing a little bit of role play, and the dinner sort of devolves from there. And the most interesting character to watch in this show is the Filipino maid for the family, played by Carolyn Fay. Her name is Pressy, and she's very often quiet, despite all the hypocrisy being espoused by the different uh, characters in this play. It's it's almost like a tennis match because, again, we're in a stadium uh, seating uh, layout, so there's audience on either sides, and often, yeah, I'm running a little long, but often uh, Pressy is up at the uh, far left end, if you were sitting on the stage right, and, uh, and observing all the uh, devolving discussion between the characters and... Anyway, I I don't want to go any further. I'm going to let Lynn speak her piece. All right, Lynn, what do you think? Well, um, I would agree with Avenue Q and uh, Audrey Dwyer and my distinguished partner over here, Steve, (laughs) that I believe Audrey Dwyer is writing a play in which every single person in it is racist in one way or another. And... I think by doing that, she's trying to show you that everybody is a little bit racist. But I don't need this mumbo-jumble, this jumble of a play of all, sorts of, of all sorts of stories to tell me what we already know. Every single one of those characters in this play, I believe there are six of them, deserves their own play. I'd like to see that. She has Julie, who is perhaps the biggest racist, blind, um, uh, prejudiced, preferred, has this sense of entitlement. She sits at the counter when um, Pressy says, would you like something to eat? You know, you should have something to eat. And she sits at the counter waiting for Pressy to give it to her, ready to serve her. So I'm finding that odd. Um, It was the agent, and they make sure that they let you know that the agent's name is Goldberg, so therefore a Jewish person is her agent, Mm -hmm. and Goldberg says, not the brother, Goldberg says, you have no right to write about, uh, about Calpurnia because you're not black enough. Another racist comment. Julie refers to Calpurnia as the maid in uh, um, um, To Kill a Mockingbird. 
Calpurnia, in fact, is described as the cook. And I think that is very, very telling. You have to take the book in the time it was written, which was 1960, but it's set in the 1930s, 1933 to 36. And you have to take it in those terms. Julie can't do it. Why should I pay attention to Julie if she's a terrible frame of reference? Her brother is the, I think, the most vocal in in pointing out her prejudice. I appreciated that. He's a guy who just wants to be left alone and work in, his, work in the law firm. The father, by the way, we haven't said, this family is Jamaican-Canadian. True. So, so Audrey Dwyer is shifting and turning that whole idea of white privilege on its head. My question is, do you want me to say, do you want me to think that every that we are all racist? I know that. And you've given me a jumble of a play with interesting characters that proves that point. Every one of them is racist and they don't get it. Even Pressy is racist. She says something in Tolong, Tagal- Tagalog, is that the name of, is that Tagalog, the, the, yeah. the, the language Philippines. of uh, generally Philippines? Yeah. She says something in that and then there are two words in English and she says it with disgust. She says the line in disgust, but the two words in English are black people. Every person there is racist, a little bit. I found it interesting, but I found the, the I found the whole point of it a muddle, a muddle. We're all racist. Next, and Steve, <laughs> uh, final thoughts then, and uh, any rebuttal uh, I, if you got it. Well, yeah, like I think Linda's saying, there's a lot jammed in this play, and yeah, I think it sounds like you're saying you'd like to see some of it streamlined because every character has their own agenda, and yeah. they are very forcefully put forward. Yeah. Um, which I didn't have so much of a problem with. I think this is this show is going to be one that's pretty hotly debated because everything is in there when it comes to current po- uh, politics and morality politics. And a lot of those Julie is a stand-in for because she complains about <clears throat> other characters' lack of intersectionality and uh, their inability to see privilege. Um, and um, I also wanted to very quickly talk about Natasha Greenblatt, who plays, uh, b- besides uh, Don Allison's um, alpha white male, she, uh, yeah, she, pl- she plays the uh, fiancé, or girlfriend rather, of Mark, and uh, who, is, who loves this family very much, but is keenly aware of her status as an outsider. And uh, I, I thought it was... I really enjoyed it. I She's really... not treated like an outsider. But if she is perceiving that as an outsider, that speaks volumes. And when when uh, the the um, white partner of this high powered of this high powered uh, firm comes to dinner and the uh, Greenblatt character says, you're racist because you're trying to build a quota. You're trying to fill a quota mm-hmm. with a black a lawyer. Who arranged the dinner, if not the kid's father? And Dwyer doesn't like it, let anyone off the let anyone off the hook lightly because she also takes great pains to point out that uh, Don Allison's character, James, the the lawyer, he uh, he has a Jamaican Canadian wife, and he and Mark bond over their shared love of Jamaican cuisine right. and culture. So yeah, there is. Uh, I thought it was yeah. 
Yep. So lots to unpack. Um, and lots uh, to unpack. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that is uh, Calpurnia, and that brings us to the end of our episode. So thank you very much for joining us for our third episode of uh, Slotkin and Fisher at the Theater. Uh, if you want to see and hear more of Lynn's work, you can uh, listen to her uh, every week on CIUT Friday morning, 89.5, and that's at 9 a.m., Lynn? 9 a.m. 9 a.m. Uh, you can also find her at theslotkinletter.com. Uh, Steve Fisher is at gracingthestage.ca and um, also at uh, various karaoke bars around town. Gracing the stage on Twitter as well, too. Yes. Yeah, Everything absolutely. I write, no matter who it's for, we'll mention And uh, Steve, what's your uh, Twitter handle? Gracing the stage. Great. And Lynn, you're at Slotkin Letter, I believe? Yeah, at Slotkin Great. Uh, and I've been uh, your impartial host, Tom McGee. You can find uh, my ramblings at uh, whathappened.ca, uh, as well as on my Twitter feed, at McGeeTD. So once again, thank you so much to Brick and Mortar for sponsoring this week's episode, and uh, to all the companies who have done such good work putting on the productions we've discussed, and uh, to you for listening. So thanks very much, and have a good night.